losses on the enemy. That a church, as soon as you use the word prevailing, means that it's a church that engages, battles, endures, and overcomes. And therefore, prevailing churches inflict losses on the enemy. Matthew 16, 18, we said, says, and Jesus said this, that the gates of hell shall not prevail against the church. So we inflict losses on the enemy. That's what we said last week. And we said to inflict loss is to restore what is stolen, to consolidate or strengthen what is restored, and to sentence the one who stole. That's inflicting losses. Inflicting losses has three parts. The first part is you restore what is stolen, and then you go and consolidate or strengthen what has been repossessed. And then the third part is, someone stole, someone needs to be punished for it. So the thief needs to be punished. These are the three parts that are involved in inflicting losses and prevailing churches learn how to do this in lives, in situations, in cities, in nations. And not too many of these churches exist. So our hope is that one day we can grow into being like this. The other thing we said last week was when you inflict losses, make sure that you don't suffer collateral damage. So we talked about four or five things that we have to take care of if we want to inflict loss on the enemy without being affected by the enemy. And some of the things we mentioned were pride, order, being part of the body, not um, continuing in evil habits, and listening to the prophetic. So we talked about that last week. Then we said that we are up against an enemy who is a man of war. Goliath was called a man of war. He is skilled in battle. This is what he's been doing since the beginning of the earth, or even slightly before that. He is a man of war. There is a shout in the enemy's camp, meaning he has a demonic horde that is very encouraged by sometimes the um, um, small battles that they win, even though they know the war is lost. And there is a relentlessness in the enemy's assault, and it's meant to wear us down. We said that. Then we said that the prevailing church must rise up, like David did, to stand before the men of Israel and say to them, let no man's heart fail because of Goliath. Your servant will go and fight. That's what Goliath said. And we need to say that for the sake of others, not for our own sakes. And then the final thing we said last week was you can only go and fight if you've been going out and fighting. You can only go out and fight if you've been going out and fighting. You can only go out and fight if you've been going out and fighting. Meaning, if you have dealt with the lion and the bear and have snatched sheep out of the mouth of lions and bears, then you can snatch Israel out of the mouth of Goliath. Yeah, the only way you can... Um, go out and fight is if you have been going out and fighting and that then gives us a starting point saying oh god teach us train our hands to war not for our own sakes but for the sake of others so that's where we finished last week so now we start this time's uh, teaching and there'll be some left over from last week guys most christian warfare doesn't look like fighting most christian warfare doesn't look like fighting it looks like Proclaiming, praying, praising, prophesying, and planting, planting seeds from the Spirit into lives, into situations. So it doesn't look like fighting. So most Christian warfare looks like praying. Man, this is such a manly color. Prophesying. 
praising, uh, proclaiming, planting seeds of the Spirit into lives, situations, cities, nations. That's what it looks like. That's what Christian warfare looks like. And therefore, if you notice, everything involves this whole thing of using your mouth. And therefore, it is the one thing that the enemy wants to take away from churches. If I can get them to be Canadian, that's all I need to do. If I can help subdue their voice, and I've said this a million times and we'll do another million. If I can subdue their voice, if I can help them to be orderly, if I can help them not to get excited or raise their voices or speak, then I have them. Because everything that is a form of warfare in Christianity needs speaking. And therefore we said last time that words, words are the delivery me mechanism. Words are the de delivery mechanism. And the word, as in the word of God, is your primary weapon. Words are your delivery mechanism, and the word is your primary weapon. We saw this with Jesus when he confronted Satan one-on-one -on -one in the wilderness, where every time the devil came up with something, be it an assault or a temptation, the intent was, I'll use words and I will use the word. So the words become your delivery mechanism, and the word becomes your primary weapon. And we said last time that when words are wielded well, and how do we wield words well? By dividing it correctly, meaning knowing, knowing what the Bible says, by adding faith to it and exerting authority. That's how we wield the word well. By dividing it correctly, meaning I need to know what the word says about a situation, I then need to mix that with faith because in Hebrews chapter 4, the promises of God did Israel no good because they did not mix the promise of God with faith. So it is, it is inadequate to know the promises of God. Now I have to take the promises of God and mix it with, because I trust who you are, O oh God, I know these words will come to pass and I will speak them. And then the final thing is authority. If faith is trust in God, authority is um, the place you have in God to know that everything you are, Jesus, you are for the sake of the church. And you have delegated to me authority over all the power of the enemy. And it is your desire and pleasure that I go and fulfill Isaiah 61, 1 to 3, which your son started and has included me in finishing. And what does Isaiah 61 verse 1 to 3 says? The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, for he has sent me to proclaim the good news to the poor, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of prison doors, to proclaim the favor of the Lord, to proclaim comfort to those who mourn. There is so much a proclamation in three verses and you suddenly realize that words are the delivery mechanism and the word is your primary weapon. And if that can be taken away from us, then we have nothing else to use. 
The other thing that we've talked about in the past and we need to be made aware of is that the spirit world is always listening. Since the spirit world does not sleep, the spirit world is always listening. And if the spirit world is always listening, then they look to see what your delivery mechanism delivers. Because they can work with what we say. This is not a name it, claim it thing. You, like I said, the word is your primary weapon. Everything you say must align with God's intent and nature. Not even his word. You cannot look at the word without looking at God's nature. Anytime a person tries to understand the word without understanding God's nature, he will get it wrong. But once you know his nature, the word becomes clearer. Because you can interpret Greek any which way you want. But if you don't interpret the nature of God, your Greek will lead you askew. You'll get whacked in your glabella. If you, I don't know, I like the sound of that word. So, because the spirit world is always listening, what is your delivery mechanism delivering? Because they're always listening. And then we said that the word is a double-edged sword, Hebrews 4.12, and it is strategy for um, fighting the enemy. We talked about this last week where we said, on one hand, it's like a machete that cuts both ways, and so you can use it as the Spirit of God directs, where um, <laughs> I love it in Psalm 103 and Psalm 105 or 7 when it says that he sent his word and healed our diseases, that my word goes forth and does not come back void, that I watch over my word to perform it, so there is a sending out of the word. And then there are stories in the Bible which are meant to be strategies that we use. Stories in the Bible that are strategies that we use. There is a deliberate reason why Elijah lies over the boy and hand-to-hand, uh, um, -hand, mouth-to-mouth and causes him to come back to life. There is a deliberate reason why uh, Elijah or Elisha asks Naaman to dip himself in the river seven times. There are deliberate reasons. These were stories in, or principles in the book of Leviticus that prophets would borrow and say, we know what this meant then. Now I'm going to use this as a parable to bring to pass what God wants to bring to pass. There is a reason why Peter sends everyone out when Dorcas is... Uh, um, dead and brings her back to life. Every, some of the acts that you see in the book of Acts are things that are drawn from stories in the Old Testament. And so in the same way, now we have a greater treasury because we got both the Old and the New Testament and many of those stories are meant to be examples that we are supposed to use to bring results. And just imagine this. Every time we break bread, we are reenacting re the death and resurrection of Christ. Every time we reenact one of these stories, you'd think the demonic realm is not aware of what happened the last time this was used. I gave you examples last time of uh, ways that we can use stories in the Bible to bring to pass things today, where we take that example and use it today. So I won't repeat it. Guys, at the end of the day, when we begin to work like this, then the jawbone of an ass, the jawbone of an ass can become a weapon of mass destruction in your hands. I mean, it's fascinating how Samson, 
is now facing a thousand Philistines and he does not know what to do. So what does he go and do? He sees the jawbone of an ass lying on the ground. He picks up the jawbone. And then if you notice in uh, Judges uh, chapter 15 verse 16 or 17, while Moses is using this jawbone to slaughter a thousand Philistines, he is singing. Now what's he singing? He's singing, with the jawbone of an ass, I've brought down a thousand Philistines. With the jawbone of an ass, I've brought down a thousand Philistines. Man, that's, that must have added insult to injury. And he slays them all. And once he's slain them all, he stops singing and he throws the jawbone away. That man had a problem with lust. Otherwise, he was one of the most amazing leaders in Israel. If that guy had somehow gotten through being seduced by every second woman who went past him, he'd have been one of Israel's greatest leaders. So he finishes using the jawbone and now he suddenly realizes that man, he's been fighting for hours, so he's super thirsty. And so what does he say? He says, oh God, I am so thirsty that I could die here of thirst. So would you rather provide me water or see the Philistines say that he died of thirst? God says, I'd rather see you provided water. And so there's a rock and God causes water to gush out of the rock and he drinks to his heart's content. And both in the slaying of a thousand Philistines with a jawbone of an ass and with having his thirst slaked, what did Samson use? The power of the Spirit of God and words. It's in Judges 15, verses 14 to 20. You can read it later. Some guys are known for some of their really bad exploits. These stories of Samson's get left on the roadside because we only remember him carrying the gates on his shoulder and then getting killed under a whole lot of pillars. But he did so many amazing things, man. What a way for him to go. What a shame. Any questions before we go on? Guys, woe is me words are not helpful. Not helpful. When you feel like woe is me, go and call one or two people and talk to them and get the woe is me out of you. Because if you don't, you'll woe is me for the next one month, catching every person that passes along to woe is me. It is necessary to express what you feel. God is that kind of a God. Jesus probably expressed some of his frustrations to Peter, James and John besides his father. Because that was his inner circle. So woe is me is fine. But after woe is me is done with those two or three friends, then do not carry it on because the spirit world is always listening. Jealousy, bitterness, envy, anger, sadness, uh, God is not on my side stuff is preyed on by the enemy because he knows that this guy is actually beginning to believe it. Let me provide him some more evidence, circumstantial evidence. This is the relentlessness of Goliath who can come and weary you for 40 days. In Psalm 149, verses 6 to 9, there's a remedy for it because we are talking about how to be a prevailing church and what our weaponry is. And one of the remedies is that the saints shall, shall glory in God. They shall lie on their beds and they shall 
engage in high praises with a two-edged sword in their hands. Again, it goes back to this whole idea of using words. High praises. What are high praises? What are high praises? What are high praises? High praises in your mouth. Okay, character and nature. High praises. What are high praises? Words that come from the heart. Declarations of? Declarations of his deeds. I would take all these things that you've uh, put together and uh, um, let me give you an example. In 1 Samuel chapter 4, a strange thing is happening. The Philistines have gathered at a place called Aphek. And Israel is there. And uh, suddenly the Philistines hear a shout. And the shout grows louder and louder. And the Philistines are wondering what's happening. They're beginning to panic a little. And then they find out that Israel is shouting because the ark of God has come back into their camp from Shiloh. And here's what the Philistines say. The Philistines say, what are we going to do? God has turned up in their camp. High praises are when a people... Uh, don't necessarily need to shout loud or don't have to be on top of a mountain, don't have to have instruments, but their praises literally cause them to recognize that God is suddenly there. It is the shout of a king in their camp. We sing that song, the shout of a king is amongst us. High praises is when you become aware that, oh, shucks, the king is actually here. That's what high praises is. What would low praises sound like? Low praises would sound like, you are there and we are here and we will praise you. High praises is when a people suddenly become aware that the shout of a king is in our midst. The shout of a king is in our midst. And so it says in Psalm 149 that one of the ways you undo the enemy, one of the ways you inflict losses, one of the ways you recover possessions, and one of the ways you execute judgments upon the enemy is by engaging in high praises with a two-edged sword in your hand, which is to say, guys, begin to learn how to have the shout of the king in your midst even when you're alone in your home and begin to use the word which is your two-edged sword. To do what? To bind kings and nobles, enemy kings and nobles, to punish them, to execute the written judgment, to inflict vengeance and loss upon the enemy. Psalm 149, 6 to 8, I'm not adding anything to it. And then God goes on to say, this honor or this privilege do his saints have. One of the things that bothered me about the verse, it says that these saints lie on their bed and they engage in high praises and a two-edged sword. And so why on the bed? Why not they walk around and do it? Because if you look at Psalm 41.3, Psalm uh, 6, 5 or 3, 5, you'll find that whenever David talks about the bed, the bed was either a place where someone was sick, the bed was either a place where someone was weary and mourning, or the bed was a place where one was absolutely tired and didn't want anything to do. And God is saying, that's not what I call a bed when you begin to engage in high praises with a two-headed sword. A bed becomes a place where you repose in rest because all your warring happens out of a place of rest. 
It doesn't matter how bad your situation gets, Jacob. Remember Psalm 149, 6 to 8, that you have the ability to be at rest because of who I am and then begin to engage in high praises where the shout of the king is in your midst and a two-edged sword in your hand. And as you begin to use this, strange things will begin to happen. Kings and enemies that are coming against you will be bound in fetters. You will execute written judgments on them. I remember uh, uh, this happened about three years ago where I had to, because of, because of a mistake that was not on my own, I had to pay back $23,000 in 10 days. $23,000 in 10 days. And uh, that's what I get paid now at Acts 29, but in those days it was different. And so I was saying to myself, how do I pay $23,000 in 10 days? And I remember panicking because this would affect my credit history. It would affect everything. It would probably affect me for the next seven years. And uh, instead of panicking, uh, and uh, I would so suggest this to you, when panic hits, withdraw from whatever you're doing. If you're at work, take an early break. If you're um, walking your dog, let the dog walk. You find a place where you come into rest with God. Withdraw. Jesus was good at this. He would either do it early morning before the disciples woke up or when he would hear really nasty news like when John the Baptist got beheaded, he would withdraw. And why would he withdraw? Not to sulk. He would withdraw so that he could align his heart quickly with God. Because once you do that, you're in a place of rest. I remember doing this and saying, okay, Father, so how do I deal with this? Because for me, it's impossible to pay $23,000 in, a, in a nine days, 10 days. So how do I deal with this? And God didn't provide a way of saying, this is how I'll get you the money or anything of that sort. All he said was, um, they will besiege you, but they will not uh, shoot a single arrow into your city. And that was a scripture from First Chronicles or Second Chronicles. That they will besiege you, but you, they will not enter the city, nor will they shoot a single arrow. I thought to myself, nuts, really? So how are you going to do this? They will besiege you, but they will not shoot a single arrow into your city. Very often, God would rather have me see who he is than how he's going to do it. Whenever you ask the question, how, when, where, you will get more panicky. Whenever you ask the question, who, you will be at peace. Because in that who is all the hows, whens, and wheres. But when you go after the how, when, where, you always end up being consumed by the how, when, where. And your mind can only think so far. And therefore, you miss out on the who. It is never how will you do it, O oh God. It is never when will you do it, O oh God. It's never where will you do it, O oh God. It is Lord who. Oh, you. Then you will. Because you always do. When, where, how will be provided as and when. It's only the who. This is so important, eh? It is only the who. And so all I have to do is align my heart with the who and not worry about the when, where, how. Because the when, where, how always gets me into panic, stressed, uh, scary, impossible. <laughs> need more faith, need more prayer, need more worship. When it's always who. 
How do I turn it off? A practice. I don't know. I mean, within 10 days, I started receiving money like crazy. Like crazy. I had 23,000 paid off in nine days. I thought to myself, can you do it again? And it didn't happen on the next nine days. But <laughs> that got paid off. And then I went uh, uh, on Equifax to check my credit score. And nothing had been touched, man. Nothing had been touched. Who? Not when, where, how. Any questions? Any thoughts? Any additions? Guys, we are called to proclaim liberty to captives, open doors to prisoners, and to restore desolate inheritances. What does that mean in simple English? It means that if there is a situation in your neighbor's life or in anybody else's life that you become aware of where there is some form of captivity, and we can look at that in two ways. Prisoners are sometimes, this is not always the case, this is just for your consideration, prisoners and captives. Perhaps there is a small differentiation in this, in that prisoners are those that are sentenced because of something done. Because of something done. Captives are those that are taken prisoner and put in bondage. Regardless, Jesus proclaims freedom through you, through you by the Spirit to both of them. And do you think there are people around like this? Tons and tons. You must count it a privilege to be able to be released and sent by God to proclaim liberty to the captives and open prison doors for those that have been taken prisoner. It's your privilege. Why is it your privilege? Why is it my privilege to find people in Steveston, in uh, Langara, in uh, Surrey, who may be prisoners and captives? And why is it a privilege? Because it is God's will that has already been enforced in heaven. It is God's great desire that every man, woman, and child be set free. God lives for freedom. He said, for freedom, I have set you free. It is so important. Freedom is such a core value of God. That he would rather give you your freedom to choose him or not choose him than take it away. But freedom is such a core value to God that he would rather send his son to die on a cross so that you may receive it. This is how important it is. And since his will is already enforced in heaven, he has a deep desire that I go to Langara and Surrey and Steveston to set free sometimes situations, sometimes peoples, sometimes lands, sometimes cities and sometimes nations because it is his will and desire and his will and desire shall prosper in the hands of Christ. The only question is, do you want to partner with Christ? He doesn't need you, but he wants you. Prisoners are those that may be sentenced, as in unforgiveness causes imprisonment. The Bible says in Matthew chapter 18 that when the man refused to forgive, he was cast into prison and given over to tormentors. Jealousy and bitterness caused imprisonment. Saul became jealous of David. And so what happened? A distressing spirit came upon him. We can set that situation free. And then there are captives, those that have been taken into bondage, those that have believed lies. One of the greatest reasons for captivity is lies. 
One of the greatest reasons for captivity is lies. Satan uses lies to keep us bound. Break the lie with truth and the person can be set free without casting out demons. Break the lie with the truth and a person can be set free without casting out demons. Demons hide in principalities and strongholds that are constructed with a set of lies. You remove that stronghold or principality built in here with lies and demons have nowhere to hide. Truth is not conducive to demonic abode. Truth is full of light. They can't stand it. How do you hide in light? I pray God that we get opportunities to enforce decisions that Jesus has already made in heaven. Where you usher in joy. Where you usher in peace. Where you usher in truth. Where you usher in healing by banishing or expelling bondages and lies and imprisonment. That you get an opportunity to do it this week. Not by casting out demons. That can come later. But by helping those that are imprisoned. Look for them. Look for Gideons. There are tons of Gideons, really nice guys, really good guys, who are in a wine press, treading grapes, where, uh, treading wheat where wine should be trodden on, where grapes should be trodden on. He's in a wine press treading wheat. All Gideons require is someone to go looking for them, and once you find them, to be able to bring them out into the open, raise them in the light, and these Gideons then end up shaping nations. I thank God for the people who had the... Willingness to come and find me in a wine press, bring me out into the light, teach me, and help me to change nations. This is what we should be looking for, looking for Gideons. What churches and businesses do is we are good at spotting talent. But we rarely go looking for Gideons hidden in wine presses. Spotting talent is easy. It's no big deal to know that Mike plays the sax. Duh! That is spotting talent. And so what do churches and businesses do? We either um, monetize the talent or we capitalize on it. So we can put him up in the worship team and say, you're a great blessing to the church. Keep blowing that sax of yours. Till the next sax player comes along who's better than him and suddenly we send him to Siberia as an evangelist because we got a better saxophonist. And he can play his sax in Siberia. Warm people up. But the point is this. That's spotting talent. But what if you looked beyond his sacks and began to try to discover the treasure within? That is what God wants from churches and businesses. That is what Jesus does. If Jesus wanted fish, Peter was a good guy to pick on. But he wasn't looking for fish. The greatest affront to God... Uh, the, uh, he, he finds this as an obnoxious insult. Is when I either disregard or I'm indifferent to your dignity and walk past it without giving you dignity or when I give you dignity based on your usefulness to me. Two things that we Christians should never do. One, I should not be indifferent to conferring on you dignity and worth. If I'm indifferent to it, if I'm, if I'm dismissive of you, if I disregard your dignity, 
It is an obnoxious insult before God. It's a personal affront to him because he makes everyone in his image. So it doesn't matter whether it's someone who's gay or straight, whether it's someone who's brown or black or white. It doesn't matter. The moment I do that, it's, it's like a horrendous insult to God. And the second thing is, when I bestow dignity upon you based on your usefulness to me, that is horrible before him. Two things we must avoid. I know I'm going off on a track, but perhaps it'll be important in the places you work, in the businesses you run. That's just off topic. Other weapons that we can use, guys. Other weapons we can use. Righteous living is a weapon. Righteous living is a weapon. Righteous living is a weapon. In Proverbs chapter 10, verse 2, it says that a man who lives righteously will be delivered from death. Sometimes uh, um, you can cast a demon out of somebody and the demon comes back seven times stronger and then you cast it out again and it comes back seven times stronger and it casts it out again and you're beginning to enjoy casting out demons, not realizing that the guy is being ravaged over and over again and that what you need to teach the person is righteous living because otherwise all that will happen is deliverance ministry. Righteousness is key to uh, inflicting losses upon the enemy because the one thing that Jesus said in John 14 and he said it so brilliantly was that Satan has nothing in me. The prince of darkness is coming and he has nothing in me. He has nothing in me. The confidence you can have when you know you're walking righteously. I didn't say when you know you're walking perfectly. I said when you know you're walking righteously. Where right living and right relationship with God and people around you is so important to you that it shows in your practical living. Ah, Satan hates it because he suddenly realizes that even though he is the prince of darkness, he has nothing in you because you are pursuing righteousness. Righteousness exalts a nation. When a nation is righteous, Proverbs 14, when a nation is righteous, it exalts a nation. When a person is righteous, it delivers him from everything that is decaying and death. Mighty weapons of God. Prevailing church can't have one or two people doing this. The entire church begins to walk like this. What a great future awaits us, guys. We're going to ride into the sunset that will never set. And so it's like John Wayne continuously riding. Oh, some of you don't know who John Wayne is. We'll talk about it next week. <laughs> yeah. John Wayne is a mixture of Wayne, Mike Barnes, and Mark put together. Oh, the second-hand lion, Elmer. We used to call Wayne and him the second-hand lions. You should watch that movie. Two movies I highly recommend. No, uh, not I highly recommend. Two movies I recommend. Second-hand lions. And uh, the other one, which is a new release, is uh, Same Difference. I'll find it. It's a really good movie. Um, Gosh, this is dangerous when pastors recommend movies in the middle of... Same, yeah, same kind of different as me. Same kind of different 
as me. Really nice movie. True story. Same kind of different as me. If you find anything objectionable in it, my name is Wayne. <laughs> so, Job 22 verse 30. I really like this verse. Job 22 verse 30. Job 22 verse 30. Don't Google the movie right now. Job 22 verse 30. Here's what it says. He will even deliver the one whom you intercede who is not innocent. Yes, he will be delivered through the cleanness of your hands. Guys, what a powerful verse. What a powerful verse. I've used this verse sometimes to pray for people who aren't repentant, but who I like a lot and who need a break. They are not repentant. They're still going down a road that they should not be going down. And here is God saying that, listen, the cleanness of your hands will deliver even those that are not innocent. It's like, inter this is real intervention, not the TV intervention. This is real intervention where God allows the cleanness of your hands to intervene for someone who is guilty. And God spares him. Job 22 verse 30. 3-0. The strange thing is, remember that story I told you about how the ark returned? And there was a big shout in the camp. That's only part of the story. Here's the second part of the story. The ark returned. There was a shout in the camp. And Israel went out to fight and lost the fight. And the ark was taken by the Philistines. And Eli dies. His wife gives birth and dies during childbirth. The son is called Ichabod. Ichabod means the glory has departed. It doesn't matter that you have the ark if you don't walk righteously. You can have all the high praises you want. You can have a two-edged sword in your hand. And yet, you can have nothing if we don't have righteous living. Sad, eh? Some other weapons and then we'll end. Hearing is a weapon. Hearing is a weapon. Hearing is a weapon. As in, oh God... How do I go about this? Um, do I um, set up an ambush? And in Second uh, Chronicles 20 or First Chronicles 20, God says to Jehoshaphat, yep, you go up this mountain and stand on the mountain and start praising. And here's what you need to say. Praise the Lord for his mercy endures forever. And as you start singing this with the priests up front, I'll set up an ambush. That's how he won that victory. David, in 2 Samuel 5, oh God, or 1 Samuel 5, I don't remember. Oh God, so how do you want me to go about this army? And here's what God says. Go behind the mulberry bushes, and when you hear the sound of troops marching over the trees, you know it's time to attack. What ways to take down the enemy, man? You think it doesn't work now? It works more now than it ever did before. Any questions before we go on? Another time David wanted to know how to take the city of Zion, which used to be called the city of Jebus. He didn't know how to get it because it was up on a hill and it was very well fortified. And then God shows him how. He says, there's a water shaft. Go up the water shaft and you'll access the city. And David sends men up the water shaft. They access the city and take it down. So whenever I'm dealing with the enemy, 
uh, on any level, be it in the life of somebody or be it over a city or a nation or a situation, my question is, Father, what is the easiest way, what is the smartest key I can use to stop this now or to change this now? It doesn't matter whether it's someone who's suffering a disease or whether it's a loss that I am suffering or whether it's something that is being taken away or something that has, been, has to be repossessed. The question is simple. How do you want to go about this, O oh God? And God will show. And when he shows, you employ it. Why is my interview taking so long, O oh God? How come I haven't gotten the results, O oh God? I sent those documents long ago. Where are they stuck, O oh God? How do I get rid of this disease, O oh God? It's been plaguing me for a while. How do I go about juggling these three, four things when things are dropping and breaking? Why are there accidents in my life, O oh Lord? Why are things breaking down every time? Why does the same thing happen again and again and again? Why, O oh God? Show. And in a second, he shows you. I remember telling the story to Acts 29 ages ago. Every time I would go out to distribute tracts downtown or do anything downtown that had to do with evangelism, I would come back and my car would be towed. I don't know why. Either I'd be a minute past or there'd be some strict car tower on a Saturday who didn't have anything else to do, who'd be waiting there to tow your car because it's slightly off the line or slightly off the minute. And so every time I went to do any evangelistic work in downtown, I would pay about 80 or 100 bucks. And I remember it happening again and again. And I remember sitting down with Mike Scandalberry and I said, you know, this keeps happening every time. It doesn't matter. It's the fifth time it's happening. And he says, Jacob, if you have a house where the thief breaks in through a window again and again and again, what would you do? And I said, I would put bars and rods and bells and whistles and alarms to prevent it from happening. He says, do that in the spirit realm. And so I remember sitting, and this was about 16 or 17 years ago, sitting and saying, oh God, this has happened so often, I've lost so much money. In the name of Jesus Christ, I bar this window from ever being broken through again. That no longer will the enemy deprive me, discourage me, do harm to me through coming in through this window again and again. It's been 17 or 18 years since my car has been touched. Another time when we were at River Road, um, here's what happened. Um, someone broke into the car and they took, um, surprisingly, all they took was my CDs. But the car was broken into. I remember coming to River Road and telling the church, hey, we need to pray that this be recovered because this cannot happen. This is not how God works. God has the ability to protect. And so whatever has been taken must be returned. We finish prayer and I go home that night and the strangest thing is waiting at the door. Someone has gathered all these CDs, tied them in a nice ribbon and left it at my door. Who does that? Which thief has the time to gather all the CDs, put them nicely together, like I never used to keep them, tie them up in a ribbon, find his entry into the building without a key, know which house I'm living in, come to that house and place the CDs outside my door. How do these things work? Again and again and again and again. I mean, I'm looking at the clock, otherwise I can tell you stories and there are others here who can tell you stories. Hear and do. The next thing is rest. If you want to if you want to go up against the enemy, learn how to rest. Because one of the uh, favorite tricks of Satan is when situations happen to make you go all gung-ho and start praying like crazy. 
and going gung ho and praying like crazy is not a god way it's usually a way of panic useless flailing using your power to turn stones into bread trying to take control self effort striving machinations manipulating things are signs of a lack of rest when things begin to break down in someone else's life you should be the one who jesus can look for and say aha there he is asleep at the stern of the boat let me go rest my head on jacob because he's my pillow he's the only one who seems to be sleeping in this god is looking for ones who are sleeping in a storm those are the ones he can really use the guys who are bailing out water they don't realize that they're in the middle of the sea of galilee and they're going to drown he's always looking for the ones sleeping in a storm what a qualification for usage you would think that god would pick on the one who's really let's pour out this water let's bail it out let's no he is looking for a pillow find me a pillow in the midst of the storm and i can use the person people of rest are tremendous fighters people of rest are tremendous fighters I mean the queen's horses are like that right the horses that pull a chariot restful horses thoroughbreds who been trained so well that it doesn't matter that you shoot off a cannonball approach them with a flame thrower um, reverse your exhaust so that it makes noises shoot these horses won't move because they respond only to one thing the whisper of the guy who drives the coach that is all these horses respond to they don't respond to anything else only once in her last 60 years has a queen's horse ever gone up on its two um legs hind uh, feet and because she was a good rider she still stayed on top only once in the last 60 years and that was because an old morris minor backfired Jeremiah 51 verse 20 It says I want you to be my battle axe I want you to be my battle axe God is talking about Cyrus but it applies to us as a church I want you to be my battle axe I want you to I want to use you to break down things I want to use you to cut down things I want you to use you to dismount rider and horse I want to use you as my battle axe Jeremiah 51 verse 20 At the end of this week or I mean on Sunday I want you to look back at the last 6 days and I want to ask this question of you Did you bind up the strong man this week and plunder him and what did you plunder him of It's a question that's supposed to make you and I think what did we do in terms of the first few lines of Isaiah 61 Was there a proclamation of good news? Was there a proclaiming of liberty to the captives and the opening of prison doors and a proclamation of the year of the favor of the Lord? As in Matthew 12:29, did I go and bind up the strong man in situations lives cities and nations and if I did how did I plunder him? What did I plunder him of?
what a glorious life awaits us i'm glad i'm still young i mean that very sincerely for once i am glad i got years left to see this happen man i pray god that god gives me years to see this happen for all of us don't be in a hurry to die guys there's lot to do yeah if you get sick get healed live so much to do any questions before i conclude and i really mean that this time any questions is this impractical is this uh something you can reach to i mean these are rhetorical questions it's not impractical it's something you can reach to <laughs> absolutely doable you know nehemiah in chapter 6 he's building the wall and doing all that stuff and nehemiah chapter chapter 6 the uh, enemy uh, which is basically sanballat um uh, gershem and uh, tobiah um they they are the enemy and so nehemiah is in the process of building the wall in chapter 6 verse 3 here's what the enemy tries first he says to nehemiah hey why don't you come and meet with us let's talk and sort out our differences and nehemiah says i got a greater purpose than i'm involved in right now so leave me alone i ain't coming down that's what he says so one of the tricks of the enemy is to deviate you from your purpose deviate you from your purpose how does he deviate you from your purpose by making your job your possessions your money your family your work far more important than christ and the church heard me oh no okay i'll repeat it how does satan deviate us from the greater purpose he deviates us from the greater purpose by presenting to us something like work family possessions money future security as of greater importance than christ and what he wants to do through the body that's the way he deviates us from purpose and he'll present it like this at this stage in your life this is what you're meant for later on you can do the lord's work as if satan knows the lease of life you have how dare he offer me that that you you need to focus on this now later on you can focus on god really since when does he decide how long i live and what i do with my life nehemiah chapter 6 verse 3 in verse uh 9 here's what he comes up with he says the enemy says to nehemiah hey nehemiah um i think um we need to talk because i think you're doing wrong and i'm going to say this to you if you don't come and talk and if you don't sit down with me i'm going to send a letter to the king and the king is going to shut you down and so now he introduces a new uh way of trying to stop nehemiah and that's through fear the threat of fear and that is something satan uses really well the threat of fear fear for your life fear for your loss of security fear for how you will be deprived fear for how others will prosper and you will not all those fears that doesn't work cuz nehemiah says nope i'm not going to listen to you so then they come up with a third ploy and here is a third ploy they send a false prophet who is an israelite and when nehemiah goes into the temple the false prophet comes and says to nehemiah hey nehemiah let's withdraw into the in a sanctuary of the temple and let's shut the door cuz in here we will not be killed 
And Nehemiah's response is, really? You think I'm afraid? I will not withdraw into the temple because I have to build a wall. I refuse to stay within because you will not bring me to a place of fear and cowardice. Now that's the third thing that the enemy does. Where we will continue to grow stronger in the church but we will never go out there. We, we, re- we retreat deeper and deeper into the sanctuary of the church waiting to be raptured. While God is saying, I placed you on the earth so that I may send you out. I placed you on the earth so I may send you out. I placed you on the earth so I may send you out. Tell me when to stop. I placed you on the earth so I may send you out. I placed you on the earth so I may send you out. Someone say stop. I placed you on the earth. Okay. Thank you. I placed you on the earth to send you out. Not to withdraw back in. I am called... We are called by the Spirit. Listen to these words because I don't mean them um, glibly. I mean them earnestly. I believe this based on what I know God will and can do. We have been called by the Spirit to alter the course of history. We have been called by the Spirit to alter the course of history and to rebuild ruined cities by proclaiming the good news, by proclaiming liberty, by proclaiming the favor and the comfort of God and the opening of blind eyes. This is what we've been called for. This is what I've been called for. To alter the course of history in cities and nations that are ruined to rebuild and restore them. To open the eyes of the blind, to open prison doors, to set captives free and to proclaim the good news of the gospel. This is what we've been ordained for. Never forget that, guys. Like I said last week, if that is not our purpose, I pray God that he shuts us down. I was praying that this week at home. That, oh God, if you are not able to accomplish this through Acts 29, will you please shut Acts 29 down? May it cease to exist. Because there's no other reason for our continuance. I'm scared of that prayer because I'm praying it sincerely. And it's an honest prayer. And if you don't, he's got no problems. He let the ark be stolen and he named the boy Ichabod. His glory was never meant to stay in the church. Habakkuk 2.14 And the knowledge of the glory of the Lord shall cover the earth as the waters cover the seas. You have been set aside by Christ to assist him in setting others aside through the pouring out of your life. Never forget that. You have been set apart by Christ. You have been, I have been set apart by Jesus Christ to assist him in setting others apart by the Holy Spirit through the pouring out of your life. One last time. You have been set aside by Christ to assist him in setting others apart by the power of the Holy Spirit, through the pouring out of your life. Let's just sing this one song and then end.